we wanted the students every year to be engaged with a locality that that London is a world city. You can do anything you like here. But as an educational model, we think it's really important that you can really get to know a place and understand the people there and what might be interesting for it. Welcome to Archonnect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia Taylor Hochberg, and this week, December 14th, 2015, I speak with Will Hunter, founder and director of the newly established London School of Architecture. The LSA is the realization of Hunter's profound dissatisfaction with the brutal financial and pragmatic realities of architecture education. After finishing his training as an architect at University College London and the Royal College of Art, Hunter became deputy editor for the Architectural Review, and in 2012 wrote the piece that would eventually lead to the LSA's founding, entitled Alternative Roots for Architecture. Having experienced firsthand the rift between academia and practice grow ever wider, while students accrue debt into the hundreds of thousands of pounds, Hunter laments the institutional failures of a long, expensive, and questionably worthwhile educational structure. The crux of the piece turned into a think tank, Alternative Roots for Architecture Education. And from research done there, Hunter began forming the structure of the London School of Architecture's postgraduate program. The school opened its doors in London this past fall, operating under a cost-neutral model where students would study while also working for pay in firms that have partnered with the school. I spoke with Hunter in August, a few weeks before session was officially underway, about what it takes and what's at stake in founding an entirely new institution of architectural education. I hope you enjoy our one-to-one with Will Hunter. So now, let's see. October 2015, that is the nominal start time for the first inaugural class of the London School of Architecture. And right now you're in the process of pairing the applicants or the now accepted applicants with the firms they'll be working with. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah, exactly. So 12 weeks to go till we open, so first week of October, and we had uh, about 140 applications from students. We have 35 students sort of paid up their deposits who we're now organizing to pair with practices. So there's about 50 practices involved and we're trying to do it by research interest. So we've made five think tanks and we've asked the students and the practices to pick which think tank they want to be in. So that's made kind of groupings of them. And then I've made a suggestion to each student and then we, that's the basis for a conversation. And then we're trying to send each student for two interviews and each practice two students to interview. And then through that, we're hoping everyone will get a placement. So this is kind of like almost a dating process where you're trying to pair mutually beneficial partners together based on interests, but also on like what type of educational goals do you imagine um, these students? It is a bit dating, but like um, like we've learned in lots of spheres, you know, three in a marriage is not great. So I'm hoping that we can put them together and then they stay married and we can leave the, the picture. <laughs> but they have to be happy, really. So both the student and the practice has to be happy. So I'm, I'm trying to make sure that then it works for both parties, really. So there could be some surprises in there that actually one of the practices I saw today said, this isn't a student that we would have thought of interviewing if we'd had their CV, but we think they could bring something really interesting to the practice because it will make us question what we're doing. So I think it's quite interesting, I think, what the outcomes might be. 
So are you kind of the main person making these partnerships? And as the role of the rector of the school, it seems like at this point, you're also kind of running all the administrative faculties as well. Can you describe kind of how you've been situated now that the school has been founded, but before it's officially kind of begun? So no, so I do have um, people helping with, there's lots of spreadsheets going on in terms of trying to make sure that they're accurate and keeping an accurate picture of where that's up to. They're quite organic. But I think actually trying to, I'm the, the one person that has, has been to meet all the students and all the practices. So in terms of making those pairings, it, it's it's important for me to be able to do that because I and I've met everybody. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's back up a little bit and and describe the difference between the first and second year in this two year program. Because as it stands, the London School of Architecture will have at this point it's only open to London and EU students. Is that correct? Yeah. To, to any well. To any student, yeah, any European student or EAA student, which is right. a series of different countries that can come and study here. So is that the case that they also all necessarily have architecture backgrounds or that they're just ready to pursue second tier architecture education? So in the UK, you need to have an architecture background to study for on a part two course. Right. Okay. So at this point, could you describe a little bit about how you've decided to split this two-year program down? Because it's very specific that the first year is devoted to a certain type of cost-neutral work with firms that um, involves pairing the student with a particular firm and having them work part-time with that firm while also studying to a point where they're able to support the the cost of their studies through the part-time work that they're doing. And then the transition into the second year work, the kind of proto-practice year where things get a little bit more real, so to speak, where the field work might be a little bit more involved. So can you describe kind of briefly what the major distinction is between year one and year two in the program? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the the original idea for the school was to, because the fees are going up in the UK to nine grand a year from about three grand a year, we students from next year will leave with about £18,000 of debt from most architecture courses. So we wanted to make a model where the fees and the salary they can earn in a placement balance out. So we've set our fees at six grand a year, which are a third cheaper. So in total, they'll pay 12 grand to the school and tuition fees. And they'll be paid in the first year, £12,000 minimum by the practice. So that's the kind of cost neutral model across both years. And, And what we're looking for is two really very different educational environments where the first year is much more collaborative and much more urban. So the three days a week in practice two days a week working on school projects. And for a lot of that, it's exploring the city. And that'll be the basis for the second year thesis projects. And then the the big kind of distinction, I think, for the course is that the practices and the students are forming think tanks. So they're producing design research for publication. So we want to kind of make a very nimble, relevant architectural research culture that is kind of engaged with the real world and, and engaged with how the power of the architect and how the world's changing and what the spatial opportunities are in there. And how does the thesis program and the final thesis product, how does that process differ from a more traditional architecture education? Yeah, so in second year, they move into the LSA studio. So they're they're out of practice, they're full-time with the school. And we've asked them to, as a threshold to get into the second year, that they need to come with a really clear critical trajectory and want to be, you know, comes in that they want to test in terms of their architecture. So in a lot of the English schools, and I don't know what it's like in the States, but in, in the UK, it's quite a unit-based system where you might have, say, a dozen students taught by 
a particular practitioner. So we've tried to move away from that in that the students are setting the agenda more and that they come with the agenda and we'll pair them in terms of who they're cheated by with what they want to get out of the second year. So it's a, it's a kind of more challenging environment, but I mean, kind of supportive, but that we're pushing them and then catching them. Hmm. And you've successfully uh, brokered a partnership with the London Metropolitan University so that when the students graduate from LSA, they will effectively get a certificate of completion from LMU with a specification that it came from the LSA. Is that correct? So London Metropolitan's our academic partner. They've got a very strong, successful architecture school, which in terms of when we were looking for a partner, they were the closest in, in terms of values. I think they're the closest really. They have this brilliant program interested in the city. It's got amazing practice teaching there. So I think the fit for us culturally was great, but they're, they're kind of bigger scale. And so the students, will, our students will leave with a London Met professional diploma. So they could, it, it's how will it, I think it's, well, we're still debating what it's called. So it's, a, it's an LSA program, but a London Met professional diploma. So they could go on and do a, a PhD somewhere, or if they're applying to a different country and they thought, you know, they've always had the London Met Diploma that they can use on a CV that is their sort of benchmark around the world. Mm -hmm. Because I imagine that kind of becoming the calling card of, of the LSA's reputation, right? Because in the US, at least, there's so much attached to institutional reputation about what school you go to and where your degree is certified from. So I'm kind of wondering what you imagine being the ideal or the like the dream reputation of the LSA once it's kind of already established itself. Is there an idea that you have of what kind of role in the overall world of architecture education it might kind of show? I mean, I sort of think, you know, d degrees are great and they're pieces of paper and they have value because they're from institutions. But what we're really looking for is students who produce amazing work and know how to go into a room and put four pieces of paper up on a wall with a proposal and win people over in terms of their ideas that these are actually, if you're a great architect, you're not going to rely on where you studied. It's about how much you can formulate a vision and bring people along with you and lead. So I think what we're looking for is that kind of leadership quality and their portfolio is a kind of true reflection of what they want their architecture to be about, that it sets up a trajectory for their career going forwards for 10 or 20 years. And aside from that, incredible, that's like that in and of itself is something of a quite <laughs> purposely, obviously, in the, in the goal of founding the LSA is quite a revolutionary idea to found the school on. And in addition to the fact that you're starting out with this cost neutral model, which I think is incredibly ambitious and incredibly interesting to kind of model not only the school's ideology off of, but its kind of social mission to be able to offer that to aspiring architects. I want to kind of discuss that a little bit more. Like, why was it so important to launch the school with this cost-neutral model where instead of kind of maybe working incrementally to move students towards a more cost-sustainable model, but instead just get off the ground with this completely kind of net zero cost balance? How difficult was that? And why was that so important to kind of start from the get-go with the cost-neutral model? Well, I think there's a head of schools conference and the, the chair of that produced this graph that showed average salary over a 25 year no 30 year career and the interest on a debt when you are paying nine grand a year and the sort of the interest always rose over the salary for, for your whole career so as a kind of statement about architecture and the profession and, and a way to recruit people into the profession it is so off-putting to anyone entering that uh, entering architecture that I felt it was really important to make sure that 
we could really attract the architecture of the profession could really attract the best minds and the best talents into it because the world is facing so many challenges right now that you want the best people working on it, not just the richest. So I think we were looking at a way to really ensure there were these alternative routes into the profession. Mm -hmm. So going back to the kind of institutional backing for the program and the eventual certification, what was the process like coordinating with REBA and other accreditation bodies to kind of get the program legitimized in that way? So we've been talking to the RIBA and to the, well, it's the ARB, which is the Architects Registration Board, which gives you the part two, so that they accredit the documentation. So we've been talking to them for a couple of years. We make a final submission to them once we've done signed the the contract on the London Met validation over the coming couple of weeks. And then the ROBA can only validate you once you've got work in. So we're talking to them now. And actually one of our directors in the school is the the chair of the REBA New Courses Committee. So we're kind of very familiar with all that, the process. Obviously, he won't be able to chair the the committee when we put ourselves forward. So once we've been open for a year, the ROBA would come and look at the work and then we'd put the REBA validation in place for hopefully when the first cohort graduates. Okay. And so when working with the firms to kind of broker this partnership between the firms and the students, were the qualifications for accreditation kind of a specific concern in deciding which firms would be partnered with? Not really. I mean, we were looking for for architecture practices that were interested in what we were doing and were interested in being engaged with a school that wanted to engage with our agenda and that they they brought something in terms of critical research interest and, and wanted to help foster and nurture talent. So I think we, we were kind of pushing an open door. I mean, a, a lot of the practices emails, we, I wrote an article in the Architectural Review, and then they got in touch with us, and I went around and met, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 practices. So there was a, a huge commitment shown by the, the, the London practices in terms of actually wanting to get involved. It, ha- it hasn't been, my fear, obviously, when we started was that the practices wouldn't really want to collaborate and maybe weren't ready for this type of model. But actually, it feels like there's this extreme hunger from the practices and also from the students, really, in terms of the number of applicants we've had. Yeah. If this whole story of the LSA kind of began when you wrote the initial review or the initial article about what your issues with architecture education as it stands were, and that which I believe was only in 2012, that for all of this to kind of come together in such a short amount of time and to in that amount of time, drum up enough interest from all these different firms. I think it's a very resounding success almost immediately because it is clearly hitting a nerve. People are clearly interested in trying out this new model and being associated with it and growing from it as well. There's part of the second year, I believe, of the program involves the opportunity for students who have already been working with a certain firm to kind of continue working with that firm and say, if they're new students, even if they're working with a firm that isn't part of the collaborating network of firms that the LSA is involved with, that that offers an opportunity for the student to then kind of recruit that firm into the LSA's network. I found that really interesting because it seemed like maybe it it could create this organic kind of self-perpetuating model of student and faculty and practitioners network that constantly grows outside of the LSA and then feeds back into the LSA. So can you tell me a little bit and just talk a little bit about what the kind of thought process was behind allowing that particular kind of clause to the collaborative firm model? I mean, my thought was, and I'm sorry, our thought was that we assumed in the first year we may end up with actually a lot of students already in placements in London who the practice really like and they then go part-time and join the programme and that might be a kind of really big recruiting ground for us. But actually it's turned out really 
that 95% of students have applied to the school and want to be placed in a practice. So it, it's actually not been that big a route. Two or three or four people in placements? No, maybe fewer. Two people who want to stay where they are. No, actually, maybe not even that. Sorry, let me root. <laughs> <laughs> there's maybe one student who wants to stay where they are. And then there's maybe four students who want to bring in new practices. Mm -hmm. Let's maybe talk about a little bit about the student population more generally, because we know they're all architects that, or they're, they are already trained as architects. But what do you think? I mean, of course, you're not going to divulge any like confidential student information, but like, what do you imagine being the thought process behind a student that is attracted to such a, a type of school that is, you know, doesn't have any proof of practice yet. It hasn't gotten off the ground yet. They get to be this kind of this vanguard class and go forward in this new thing. What do you imagine or what do you kind of glean from that new population? What what are their major concerns and what brought them to the LSA? I mean, actually, they're, I mean, I think they're pioneers. That's why they've come. So what's great is that they've come from all over the place in lots of different schools and that they have a huge level of enthusiasm for the program. So in terms of the, the doubts that they've expressed, they that hasn't really been that many. I mean, they've been, what, what's great is that you think these are a whole bunch of people who've come from all over the place who really want to try a new model of education and are totally up for it. And that level of enthusiasm, I think, is bound to produce something interesting. And I think what is slightly different about the student cohort from, from other schools I've been aware of is that I think they're much more collaborative as a group of students, in, particularly in the portfolios we've seen. They've often done group projects. And I don't think we're getting the kind of lone genius model of student, that sort of portfolio that's sort of supremely interested in developing its own kind of graphic language, let's say. I think we're getting the students who are more engaged with each other and highly engaged with the world. And I think that's that's the, probably one commonality I've seen. And that certainly meshes with the idea of the LSA in general, that it's it's not so much concerned with spitting out that signature aesthetic style or so. It's more about a truly collaborative practice with that is heavily based within the locality of London, which is another thing that is so fascinating about the school. The work that places students in, I believe, the first year working with specific boroughs in London and working on active projects. Can you describe what kind of projects the students might be working on and what is it about the focus on a certain borough or a certain neighborhood in London that you thought was important to include in the education? So we're starting off in Soho, which is like the centre of town where, you know, Crossrail will be coming through, which is a big piece of infrastructure that 5 million people will be using a day. So, I mean, it's astronomically busy in terms of a piece of metropolitan London, but also has this tight network of streets. So the way those two things collide together, we thought was really interesting. And we wanted the students every year to be engaged with a locality that, that London is a world city. You can do anything you like here. But as an educational model, we think it's really important that you can really get to know a, a place and understand the people there and what, what might be interesting for it. So th there are other schools that do, you know, the kind of unique trip where you might go to Japan for a week and you might visit your site for three hours but that's quite difficult really then to get a sense of you know you're designing a project for someone that you've for a whole year that you may only see for you know three hours which I think is quite difficult so the level that we're looking to operate at master's level we really want them to be able to engage with a place over quite a long period of time and test their ideas there and what kind of projects are they are they explicitly architectural or explicitly okay. spatial I don't think they have to be I think if the students go off and leave the, the course and become politicians or planners or 
I don't know, musicians or anything really, but we do want spatial proposition. So we're looking at how architects can make spatial proposals about a place and about the world. So I think it has to be something that is is complex and looks at the way that we can reconcile really complex pieces of information as spatial proposal. And does the LSA then have a headquarters of sorts or like a core neighborhood in London that it operates out of? We have a headquarters, yeah, in um, Bloomsbury, which is sort of where the AA is and UCL, the Bartlett and a lot of the big schools are. So we've got a very small outpost there, which we're, we're working from at the moment. Oh, that's handy. So was that... That was that a, a conscious decision to kind of situate with all those other schools? No, not not really. It was um, we've moved in with Nigel Coates, who's the chair of our academic court. So he, we're in his office as well at the moment. Okay, and is that going to be kind of the long term, or is there a, a plan to maybe have satellite locations around London? So the Design Museum's our main spatial partner. So all our crits and lectures and seminars are at the Design Museum, and then I think there's this whole kind of network of practices that also have you know, meeting rooms and canteens and spaces that we might use for different events as well. But, you know, we don't want to get, I think we need a kind of central core office for the team of two or three or four people. But the, And then in the second year, there's a studio for the students. So they're all based in a studio together. But really that we want to be able to, to keep the infrastructure relatively flexible for the first few years. Hmm. I think, at least from an American perspective, the stuff we see coming out of the like urbanism thought in London, London specifically, is a little bit dire at this point. Like the way people are writing and thinking about London seems to be kind of a anticipatory apocalyptic scenario where people are kind of thinking of how the city is developing and kind of becoming more corporatized as signs of the it's inevitable, like just collapse or something that is like very dramatic. And I'm sure I'm sure that a lot of that is just like is the translation overseas and a lot of it gets overblown. But maybe you could talk a little bit about how you feel the climate is in London right now, which is explicitly influenced by the architectural framework of the city and what is being built and how people are responding to it. What is the atmosphere right now in London, in your opinion? I think just generally in London, there's a lot of money. So, I mean, it is the center of wealth and the real problems are the disparity in how it's distributed. So the, the access to opportunity is not even, and that's a big problem both urbanistically and architecturally, but just generally in terms of life, really, that that's, that, that, that's what we're seeing in a kind of very late capitalist metropolitan city, that it, it's a very complex urban framework. And I think actually, in terms of the way the city's developing, it's getting so big now. So how we actually connect up a city that has been developing over a period of I don't know, however many hundreds of years to the scale that it's at and making new cities and new neighbourhoods is a very complex challenge. And do you imagine that the certain model in London could eventually, for the LSA, kind of become another city essay, as in a school of architecture that takes the same model of LSA's educational ideology and then puts it into another major metropolitan city? Is that something that you kind of imagine maybe years and years down the line eventually having? Year three, we were sort of thinking New York would be fun. That would be a nice, a nice place to come or Tokyo. But I think, I think you need a really big city to have enough practices and enough critical mass and a critical mess to be able to do do stuff to make it interesting. Just to go back a little bit to what you were referring to in the economic disparity present in London, that's another thing that seems to be an obvious reaction that the cost-neutral model for the schools re is responding to, to say that 
you know, in this incredibly, incredibly rich city to have an educational model that is that is able to offer this kind of cost neutral opportunity is incredibly valuable. But then there's always also other things to take in mind that I'm sure the LSA has been grappling with having to do with other financial costs. So simply having a cost neutral institution doesn't necessarily guarantee you a flat in London, right? So what other financial aid models or financial support models is the school considering? So we're, so we ultimately, with from year three, we want access to the student loans company, maintenance loans and maintenance grants. But that's quite a long process at the moment. So you have to go through the quality assurance agency to get a review from them, which you can only do once you've been open for a year. So the, the government is seeking, or ha- the last government is, was seeking to make a kind of market in tertiary education. And there's still a couple of barriers left in place. So we're hoping that those might be lifted soon so that they students get access to that funding from the state sooner to support new models of education. What we're doing in the meantime is we're fundraising for bursaries. We're offering some bursaries already to students, but we're fundraising and we're about to start massively from next week. We've got the fundraising task force to try and raise a lot more money over the next 12 weeks to give financial support. So obviously we realise that there's a, there's a kind of funding gap between the state funding coming online in two years and the, the philanthropic funding that we'll need to support these students over the next two years. Mm. So we know, I mean, what's interesting is that the students we've got now are real trailblazers because they are coming to us knowing that they're in a, it's a difficult situation, that they haven't got the full cushioning that is, as if they'd gone to a um, university where there's all the state funding in place. So they're kind of super keen to be with us. And we're hoping that we can connect that enthusiasm with the wealth that we've been talking about in London to try and help support these students on their, you know, to transform their uh, lives through education. I imagine that, uh, yeah, as soon as like the institutional other support systems kind of fall into place and the school has a proven model that it can point to, that things will become a little bit easier to organize. It's very circular. Like all these things, it's, it's circular. So it's so much easier once you've got students signed up and you've been validated to get to look credible. Although we have raised already £200,000 from a range of practices and benefactors and patrons who have kind of been extremely supportive from kind of Sateri Leahy and Nadia Swarovski to AHMM and Orms and Grimshaw and other people I'm forgetting, I think now. But I mean, there's kind of been this huge support from the, the world of well, not just from, from the arts, but from finance and from business that people see the need to support this the education, really. So, yeah, could you describe a little bit who those other non-architectural players are who have kind of seen the LSA as a, a necessary movement and are supportive of its cause? Yeah, sure. So Nadia Sorovsky, you probably know, is uh, she's a founding patron. She is from the Sorovsky family, which is Sorovsky Crystals. There's Sir Terry Leahy, who was the former CEO of Tesco, which is a uh, big supermarket. There's Sir Peter Mason, who used to run a company called AMEC, which is a very big construction company. He's now chairman of Thames Water. There's Martin Halusa, who's the chairman of Apex, which is a very large private equity fund. Uh, and then there's a, quite a lot of my trustees, so Crispin Kelly, Davina Malinkbrocht, Neil Hobhouse, who are sort of trustees of the school. I think that might be it. And did they, how are those relationships kind of, how did they come to be? Did you reach out to them or they were, they kind of identified the cause and were interested and expressed interest? So they were through, yeah, it's been one of those quite organic things where it's been, you know, initially this kind of friends and family thing where we've gone to the people closest to us and then that sort of moved out to the next level of contact. 
Gotcha. Okay. Maybe we could return a little bit then to how students will be interacting with firms and the kind of work that they'll be doing both inside the LSA umbrella and then just within the the firm umbrella. Could you just maybe pick a few specific firms that are in this collaborative network and uh, describe the kind of work that they do and that the way that their practice meshes with the LSA? And it can be any firms like that you just think are, you can just pull it out of the hat and we understand you just don't have time to go through all 50 more firms to describe, but they can just be like a few illustrative ones. I mean, I think one of the firms that was the first on board, well, there was two firms that came on board really early, was AHMM, Alfred Hall, Monaghan, Morris, and Orms, which are, they're two big firms. They work across lots of different sectors. They work internationally. But through the RIBA, they've both been involved in trying to transform education. So I think together they invented this thing called teaching practices which they would try to make, which is very similar to what the LSA is in a way. So there's been this movement from the RBA and from AHMM and dorms to do a kind of different type of education. So I think students there will be working across a range of sectors and a range of, you know, different, in, in kind of big projects, but obviously in, in environments where the practices see a supporting role for what they're doing. But we have kind of smaller practices like Assemble, who are on the shortlisted for the Turner Prize this year, which is the sort of big arts prize in the UK. The uh, AOC, who are, it's difficult to describe their work. So, you know, quite small, more arts-based practices. We've got practices that are more like developers, so they're finding their own land and developing their own projects um, and operating in different ways. So I think there's like you would expect of London, there's every type of practice you could imagine involved. Mm. I mean, through to, you know, sort of Cullinan Studio and Rogers Sturck Harbour and Partners, who are kind of Reba gold medalists and, you know, have built. I mean, if you look at the amount of work the Practice Network has built around the world, it's astonishing. And so is there like a key or set evaluation metric for how students progress through the program? Like, will the firms be issuing some type of report or like graded point system to kind of track the progress? Or is that not something that the LSA is concerned with? No. So we're, we're mostly, we're not marking their work in practice. We're marking their critical understanding of it. So obviously everyone's going to be having completely different experiences. But what we really want to do is kind of make a, a platform where they can debate those and that they can form their own critical judgment of it and to make a reflection of the practice they're currently in to in a way to project forward about the practice that they would like to be in in future so a bit like an MBA might do that they, you make a strategy about where you want to be in, you know you design your career not just learn how to design buildings at this point merely a few months before the school opens uh, how does it feel how does it feel to have come to this point in just a few years uh, well this is the exciting bit I, until let's say two weeks ago, it was a lot of doing a lot of paperwork, contracts, producing reports. Now there's the real fun bit because there's 35 students, 50 practices. It's about making the culture now. So it's like, it's very real when you get rooms of people and they're excited to meet each other and they want to produce work. This is the kind of thing. And we're putting together the lecture program and inviting all the people to that. This is the exciting bit. So in our understanding and our kind of charting of the LSA, we've seen the beginning or the origin point as rooted in this architectural review piece that you wrote in 2012, articulating your grievances and the issues that you had with the architectural education model that currently stands. And 
from 2012 to now to fall 2015, admitting a first round of students in a brand new school with accreditation and associated firms and just a cost neutral school at that. It seems to us like a pretty amazing trajectory, pretty accelerated one as well to have accomplished in what seems like a very short amount of time. When you first wrote the article and when I believe you began kind of a, a think tank and the response to that to kind of develop ideas for new directions that architectural education could head, did you ever imagine that this all could actually come together in three years? What were your expectations when you first started? I was hoping for two years, but um, <laughs> so, okay. I'm feeling behind schedule, really. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> but initially in the first conversation I had with Robert Mull, who's the Dean of London Met, I was saying, you know, it can't, it can't take that long. And he was saying it will take you three years. So he, he was right and I was wrong. <laughs> so, and actually looking back, three years is about right. You, I think there's, that, there's a graph I've seen produced where you, you start out as an uninformed optimist and then you become an informed pessimist. And then you come out the other side as an informed optimist. So I think we're at that stage now where we've found out what we need to find out. And we're, we're kind of, we're 99% of the way there. And what else is kind of the, what's that last percent? Just getting the students in? Yeah, going through the interview process, getting the contract signed in terms of the students in the right placement, or inviting people to the public lecture series. I mean, nothing major, really. 99% done. Mm. After the school begins, do you have certain events kind of planned for more interfacing with the public to kind of, you know, perform and present the LSA's work to the greater London architectural scene? Well, I think we, so we've got a public lecture series and I think we really want to think about the, so the design think tanks are looking at very different areas of study. And I think we, part of the challenge for them is to think about what audience they want to connect with and what's the best platform to do that. So if it's about housing policy, then it's how do you lobby government to change housing policy? Or if it's about new forms of public space, it's about, it might be about how you communicate with the public or, or whatever. So I think we're looking at, I think that's part of the, the question we're asking them to do. Hmm. And in the long-term focus of kind of imagining that the LSA has an incredibly florid and successful first couple of years and is able to expand to New York City. That's kind of, you know, in the US, that would be for us a kind of, that would be the perfect place to go. That makes perfect sense. But it's also even perhaps more so than London, a incredibly rough place to try, just try to set up. You know, it's economically also very divided and a difficult place to live and also a very competitive architecture market. So should um, I come so, to LA instead? Yes. And you'll help me. You've got to help. We'll do a media partnership with you. Absolutely. We have a very strong student following of people who are, I think, maybe one of the most commonly debated subjects in Archonnect is how crazily bad architecture education is and needing of a very strong reboot. And that ever, and a lot of the debates just boil down to what you were taught in school and whether or not, because you had to suffer through it, the next generation should as well, just to continue the cycle of abuse instead of trying to adopt a new model. But that you brought up Los Angeles is actually interesting because, of course, we have the, the SciArc model of kind of a new architecture school beginning in a very different cultural climate in Los Angeles than today, but still one that is reverentially referred to and, and still quite admired. Did you take any inspiration from other schools like SciArc or other like new avant-garde schools that might have come about earlier in the 20th century, but still nonetheless have applications to today's practice? Not particularly SciArc. I mean, I think we looked at, um, in the issue we did in the AR, Beatrice Colomina wrote a piece about lots of different educational models that are sort of set up. I think they're probably all in Italy in the 50s or 60s. I can't remember now. I mean, I think we looked at, you know, Alvin Boyarsky. I think he's been quite a big inspiration, how he changed the AA. 
And I think a lot of mm-hmm. our pra- the people who are involved in the school are from the AA. I'm trying to think which other schools. You know, maybe a bit of the Prince's Institute because that was quite quite um, interesting. It's something that was independent. So Prince Charles had this architecture school for a bit. It's um, we have been inspired by other people, but I think we also were inspired by a kind of idea of taking a blank sheet of paper and seeing what we came out of it from first principles. And so as the school is on the cusp of its beginning, we're very excited to see what comes out of it. Me too. (laughs) Yeah, it's a surprise for everyone. No one knows exactly what will happen. What do you imagine your, how do you imagine your role changing as soon as the school becomes a established institution? Right now, obviously you're the director and that role may not nominally change, but do you imagine in the near future kind of having different responsibilities and roles within the school just to kind of keep it running? I don't know. I mean, I went I, last week. I went away with my parents, and my stepfather was saying, "What is your succession plan?" I was thinking, "God, we haven't even started yet. I've got something <laughs> of the succession plan." So I've been so consumed with getting all the stuff done to open. I think once it once it opens, I think it will be that really fun bit of actually engaging with quite a small cohort of like a family of students, really, and getting to know all of them and making that kind of human social organism that becomes the kind of culture that will be the fun bit that will be the school. I mean, I think that's the thing I'm really looking forward to. Wonderful. The conversation to be had and what comes out of it. Because I think what we have realised when we brought the practice together and the students is there's no real agreement on what we're doing. It's not a school where there'll be a single way of doing things. And I think even within the design think tanks, there'll be disagreements and debates some of which may be more lively than others. So I think actually having a really genuine debate and having it publicly is something that is really exciting. We're so excited to uh, finally get a chance to talk to you and discuss the school and on the cusp of its kind of realization. So thank you so much for joining us and we hope to stay in touch. Thank you very much. Speak soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Will. Thanks for listening to our one-to-one interview with Will Hunter. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. To make sure you don't miss the latest One to One interview, new episodes come out every Monday. Subscribe to us on iTunes. To keep up with podcasting news from Arconnect, follow us on Twitter through at ArcSessions, that's at A-R-C-H Sessions, or hashtag Arconnect Sessions. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can also email us through connect at Arconnect.com. Thanks again for listening to One to One.